Thank you. That concludes general questions. The next item of business is First Minister's questions. And at question number one, I call Douglas Ross. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. And can I remind the Chamber that my wife is a serving police officer uh, in Police Scotland? Uh, and let me be clear the vast majority of Scotland's frontline police officers do a fantastic job under incredible pressures. But a new report to the Scottish Police Authority raises a number of serious concerns about systemic issues throughout Police Scotland. The Independent Review found, and I quote, first-hand instances of racism, sexism and homophobia. In response, the Chief Constable of Police Scotland, Sir Ian Livingston, has said this today. It is right for me as Chief Constable to clearly state that institutional racism, sexism, misogyny and discrimination exist. He continued, Police Scotland is institutionally discriminatory and racist. Can I ask the First Minister for his response to the Chief Constable's statement? First Minister. Can I thank uh, Douglas Ross for raising uh, this issue? Uh, can I first and foremost commend uh, Sir Ian Livingston, the Chief Constable of Police Scotland, for acknowledging institutional racism and indeed misogyny and other discriminatory behaviours within Police uh, Scotland. That is the first step that is required yeah. in order to then dismantle those institutional and structural barriers uh, that exist. Um, Douglas Ross was right to put the emphasis on the fact that, of course, this is not an inference on individual police officers who we know put themselves in harm's way to protect us day in and day out. But there is no doubt that institutional racism exists in our society. And I uh, want to take a moment just to say that, as a person of colour, the statement from the Chief Constable is monumental, historic. Uh, I remember raising issues around racism uh, in the police force, Strathclyde Police as it was, back then, when I was stopped and searched over a dozen times as a young boy, whether it was in my car or walking in with my friends in the street or in airports uh, at the time. Uh, and so uh, the acknowledgement from the Chief Constable is very welcome uh, indeed. I hope it also serves uh, as a reminder to all of us that in whatever organisation we belong to, we have a responsibility to also question whether or not the organisations uh, that we lead certainly this is the case for me in the organisation that I lead, that we uh, examine and reflect on whether we are doing enough to dismantle those barriers, not just of institutional racism, but structural discrimination that exists for many people with a disability or because of the sexual orientation, because they are women, uh, so on uh, and so forth. Uh, so I, I do welcome the statement from the Chief Constable. Uh, as the Chief Constable himself has said, having now made that acknowledgement, it's so, so important we now see action in terms of what can be done to dismantle those barriers. And again, I just end uh, my answer to that particular question uh, by saying that uh, I take my responsibility seriously as First Minister and I rededicate myself to do everything I can to dismantle those barriers of institutional racism, uh, misogyny, bigotry and discrimination where they exist here in the Scottish Government and what I can do right across society in that regard. Douglas Ross. The Chief Constable also said this today, when an organisation doesn't have all the necessary policies, processes, practices and systems in place to ensure it doesn't happen, it is an institutional matter. Uh, the SPA report also found, and I quote, 
significant concerns about the absence of effective performance management systems during the first decade of Police Scotland's existence. So the problem here is wider, it is systemic, it starts far away from the front line with the management and the leadership. Does the First Minister agree, and given that he has just rededicated himself to tackling this issue, what urgent action will his government take in response to the SPA report and the Chief Constable's statement today? First Minister. Of course, uh, those in management and leadership positions uh, absolutely have to bear responsibility, particularly where it is organisations uh, that we lead. It is our responsibility to ensure that we examine uh, the evidence, we collate the data, and we come to the conclusion around those structural barriers that exist. That is true for me as First Minister. I'm certain uh, Douglas Ross will be reflecting uh, on the organisation, the political party uh, that he leads uh, as well. So there is an important point for those that are in management uh, or indeed leadership. Uh, there is one phrase that is often used by, by Anna Sawar. Uh, for all our disagreements, there is one phrase that I have always found that he has used uh, that I think uh, captures uh, the issue very well, and that is that this is a fight for us all. I think that is absolutely right. I think uh, although management and leadership absolutely have a role to play, uh, all of us have a role to play in our organisations in order to, to confront those barriers, reflect uh, on, on, on what more we can do to undermine them. I am committed to working with uh, Police uh, Scotland, but above and beyond that, I want to make sure that all of those organisations uh, that, are, that are particularly within the public sector, uh, I want to make sure that we are collecting the data, that we have a view uh, on those structural barriers uh, that exist, uh, and then, of course, work with senior management and leadership right across, particularly the public sector, but I also challenge the private sector in this regard too, as I say, to dismantle those barriers that we know have existed and do exist uh, across, right across our society. Douglas Ross. The SPA review also found outright fear among officers about bringing forward complaints. The report notes at paragraph 5.8, we heard of people being punished for raising issues or concerns. That is so clearly unacceptable that police officers who are raising these concerns internally were being punished. We must surely all agree that officers should be able to raise legitimate concerns without suffering any consequences. My party has raised these officers' concerns about the broken police complaint system for some time. It is clearly not fit for purpose. So given the severity of this report to the police authority and the Chief Constable's statement, will the First Minister vow to change the current complaint system and the process within the force that has clearly in the past and continues to let down frontline officers who are raising legitimate concerns. First Minister. I think it's a very fair point from, from Douglas Ross. We are already, of course, taking forward work from the Dame uh, Elise Shangelini uh, review and indeed various HMICS uh, reports in, in this regard. So if there is uh, more work we can do, I, I absolutely commit. Uh, to responding to Douglas Ross's challenge and the challenge that others uh, have raised to look at the complaints uh, process. Now, process is one thing. It is, of course, important, so important that we look at having the correct process. But culture, uh, I would say, is equally, if not sometimes even more important. And that's why I think the Chief Constable's statement was so monumental, because what it's demonstrating from the very, very top of the organisation that that culture simply is not acceptable. And of course, that is it is important that permeates uh, down right through the ranks. But again, I go back to the point uh, that uh, Douglas Ross uh, makes. Uh, of course, what more we can do 
Uh, in terms of the process in place, uh, I will absolutely look and seek uh, to do. Uh, we are, as I say, taking forward the recommendations uh, of the Dame Alicia Angelini review in various HMICS reports uh, in this regard. Uh, but I do welcome the statement from the Chief Constable. Uh, it's more than just process. Process being important, of course, uh, but of course, culture uh, is vital too. The Dame Angelini report published in 2020, three years on, officers are still commenting about a system that is broken. We have been raising this uh, in this chamber uh, for some time, and I think this further report to the SPA and the Chief Constable's statement today makes that an absolutely crucial issue that must be dealt with with the utmost uh, urgency. Uh, the SPA report also found that frontline pressures have left officers without the time to take part in vital training exercise. It found officers didn't feel that they had time to deal with legitimate complaints and grievances because they were so stretched with their responsibility to maintain public order. The SPA report found, and I quote, the greatest challenge we heard and observed to driving cultural change within the service was the pressures on frontline resourcing. Unison have said that there is a £74 million shortfall in the policing budget. Now, absolutely none of that excuses discrimination, but it is a serious problem limiting Police Scotland's ability to change its culture and leaving thousands of first-class officers without the resources they need to do their job. So does the First Minister accept that Scotland's police officers are being asked to do too much with too little? First Minister. Can I, I, I don't agree uh, with that characterisation. Can I emphasise and re-emphasise a point that Douglas Ross just made? Uh, of course, funding, and, and Douglas Ross is absolutely within his rights to question us in relation to our funding. That can never be an excuse for institutional racism, institutional misogyny, institutional uh, discrimination, um, wherever it exists. And that is a point, uh, in fairness, Douglas Ross uh, himself uh, has made, but I just want to re-emphasise In terms of uh, the, the funding that we provide uh, for Police Scotland, uh, despite uh, UK Government uh, austerity over the years, we've increased police funding uh, year on year since 2016. We've invested more than £11.6 billion uh, in policing since the creation uh, of Police Scotland in 2013. In terms of police officer numbers, of course, uh, these are matters uh, operational uh, for the Chief uh, Constable, but the latest data, the latest comparable data that we have uh, shows that there's 30 police officers per 10,000 in Scotland. Uh, it compares favourably to 24 officers per 10,000 in other parts of the UK and England uh, and uh, in Wales. In terms of um, what more we can do to reduce the burden on uh, police officers, which again is a very fair uh, and legitimate point for Douglas Ross uh, to raise, uh, we're doing a fair bit of work uh, in relation to the calls of uh, the call-outs in terms of mental health that police officers often have to tend, which we know uh, takes up a significant amount uh, of their time. I'm happy to write to Douglas Ross with detail uh, of that work that we are progressing. In terms of going back to the crux of the, the, the questions that Douglas Ross uh, is asking, uh, we have been working alongside policing partners to deliver Dame Alicia Angelini's uh, recommendations. To date, 58 of those recommendations have been delivered. Uh, and given the uh, urgency uh, of this issue, uh, the government will introduce later this year the police complaints 
and misconduct handling bill to deliver uh, on those recommendations. But I go back uh, to the central point that uh, I think everybody uh, will agree with. Uh, it is so important that the acknowledgement of institutional racism and other uh, discriminatory uh, behaviours is recognised. Uh, what is really important is to then work together to ensure that we dismantle those barriers. I'm certainly committed to doing that. I've got no doubt the Chief Constable is, and I'm certain whoever succeeds him uh, in, in, in his role uh, will also uh, look to do that too. Thank you. Question number two, Anna Sarwar. Officer, myself, the First Minister and many others have been campaigning on the issue of racism, prejudice and hate for many, many years. And I don't think we can downplay the significance of the bold statement from the Chief Constable today. But I think it's important to emphasise there is not a single organisation or institution that is immune to prejudice. So what we must see is not just the words, although they are important, but it must inspire action. And as the First Minister has said, that is a responsibility for each and every single one of us. Yeah, officer, there is a culture of secrecy and cover-up at the heart of this dysfunctional and incompetent SNP government. Yeah, the dodgy deal with Liberty Steel, yeah, the ferry fiasco, the symbolic deposit return scheme, even heartbreaking tragedies at the Queen Elizabeth, all shrouded in secrecy. Yeah, but incompetence has consequences, whether it's hidden from view or not. Freedom of information laws are one of the last defences against SNP cover-up, but ministers are riding roughshod over these laws. But new data we are publishing today shows the number of FOI requests the Scottish Government has passed on to ministers for approval has risen fivefold. And once a case goes to ministers to sign off or to cover up, waiting times double, with one in every six FOI breaching legally binding response times. So can I ask the First Minister, what's he got to hide? First Minister. There is uh, nothing uh, to hide and it is a sign of, I think, increasing desperation that Anna Sawar is relying on insinuation, uh, relying on trying to throw as much mud as he possibly can to hope that things stick. Taking that scattergun approach, but actually, of course, this government has a very good record when it comes to responding to freedom of information. We are one of, of course, we are the one of the governments that has the most ambitious targets on these islands when it comes to, of course, responding to FOI legislation. Yes, there have undoubtedly uh, been challenges. I was uh, questioned on this issue at the last uh, conveners uh, group committee meeting yesterday. I responded by saying I'm more than happy to review uh, and to look at, to investigate what further the Scottish Government can do uh, to ensure that we are the most transparent uh, government uh, on uh, these uh, islands. That is what we will seek uh, to do. Thank you, what members. I would say uh, to Anna Sawa, there is, of course, there is, of course, uh, legitimately a reason why ministers may have to sign off on freedom of information requests. I've made it very clear to our cabinet secretaries, to ministers, that when those, when those approvals uh, come up, uh, that they should be, uh, of course, signed off uh, with urgency uh, and uh, with pace. And what I would say, Anna Sauer, of course, mentioned Ferguson Shipyard. In relation to transparency, of course, the Minister, the Cabinet Secretary, came uh, at the earliest opportunity, as soon as that written authority was provided, he came at the first opportunity, took questions, made sure he answered those questions. That presiding officer is not hiding away. That is transparency in action. Anna Sauer. Okay. Okay. Officer, uh, he says he's transparent, transparently hopeless is what people will see right across uh, the country. Uh, because what we pointed to was facts and what he should do is listen 
to his own information commissioner. Because, presenting officer, the SNP despise transparency. At every turn, they cover up failure and instead of confronting it. No answers on what is going to happen to their shambolic deposit return scheme. No answers on the ferry fiasco, despite years of delays and millions of pounds overspent. No answers for families bereaved by the scandal at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. And bullying investigations kept secret. Now, I asked the last First Minister to share the outcome of Fergus Ewing's bullying investigation, and she said it was legally impossible. But Hamza Youssef has now suggested he's had a change of heart. Why? Because the politician in question has the audacity to question the SNP leadership. So can, I ask the first, so can the First Minister tell me, does he believe in transparency every day or just when he desperately needs it to try and intimidate his critics? First Minister. Desperate, desperate stuff, presiding officer. As I said, when Anna Sawar, somebody who has lots of style but no substance, comes to this chamber and demands, and demands we take action, when he demands we take action Members. but has no facts to back it up, that's when you know how desperate Anna Sawar really, really is, presiding officer. So let me give him some of the facts that were missing, of course, uh, from his question. Here are some of the facts. Scotland has been a member of the Open Government Partnership since 2016. In 2022, last year, we handled more than 4,500 Freedom of Information requests and 86%, more than 8 out of 10 of those responses came within 20 working days. We want to do more. I think we should try to see if we can improve uh, that rate uh, of response uh, where we can. And on DRS, which is incredible, it now seems that Anna Sawar is taking the side of the Cabinet's man in Scotland. He is taking the side of the party that is determined to undermine devolution. Anna Sawar. So desperate Thank to attack the SNP. He's siding with the party that opposed the creation of the Scottish Parliament in the first place, presiding uh, officer. And when it comes to the question he asked uh, in relation to ministerial complaints, my view has not changed from my previous issue. She was absolutely right. We have an obligation in government to, of course, uh, ensure we take legal advice uh, where appropriate and to make sure that we adhere to that legal advice when it comes to any issue, including uh, complaints around uh, former uh, ministers. Uh, so I will continue to make sure I take that responsible approach. Uh, but, of course, I will also continue to make sure we do everything we can as a government to be as open and transparent as we possibly can. Anna Sarwar. Presenting officer, we, we now have a first, a no style and no substance first minister and leader of the SNP. And, and, actually, and actually, we're taking the side of Scottish businesses and Scottish jobs, and perhaps he should listen to the consequences that he's imposing on people. Mr. Sarwar, sorry, I mean, I can hardly hear here. Um, those who are gathered here to witness this session in action, I'm sure they would like to hear too. So let's just keep the noise down, shall we, while members are on their feet. Mr Sarwar. It's OK, presenting officer. The, the strategy is going really well. We'll just keep doing what you're doing. It's working really well for you. Uh, the SNP are taking Scots for a ride, and we don't even get the luxury of enjoying the camper van. FOI laws are flouted, dissent is suppressed, and problems are swept under the carpet. This is a dysfunctional incompetent and sleaze-ridden government failing on the basics. And this has consequences. 
an NHS at breaking point and a cost of living crisis spiralling out of control, a party in chaos distracted from the day job, finances under police investigation, a former council leader under police investigation, the last chief executive arrested, the last treasurer arrested, offices raided and police tents in gardens. So I have two questions for the First Minister. He says he is transparent. So can he tell us how many police investigations are ongoing into the activities of his party and his government? And secondly, when will he finally end the rotten culture of secrecy and incompetence at the heart of this SNP government? First Minister. You know, I, I, I tend to think it's best for politicians to leave these verdicts to the people of Scotland. Yeah. And of course, they have chosen the SNP time and time and time again to leave this Scottish government. And I saw Anna Sarwar celebrating polls, celebrating polls that once again put the Labour Party in second place, yeah. celebrating being a loser. That sums up Anna Sarwar and the Scottish Labour Party uh, pretty well, presiding officer. Anna Sarwar said when it came to DRS, he is on the side of business. Can I remind him that many people in business, many of our business organisations, want the DRS progress? None less, of course, than AG Bar, the producers of Scotland's national drink, Iron Brew, Coca-Cola. Many organisations, many business organisations want, of course, the DRS to go ahead because, of course, they see the value in protecting our environment uh, and that's what DRS will do. But incredibly, just to take a pop at the SNP, Anna Sawar sides with the Tories. It's not the only place, presiding officer, where he sided with the Tories. Because if you want to talk about business, we know one of the biggest shocks to the economy has been because of that hard Brexit that has been imposed upon us by the Conservative government. And of course, Keir Starmer's Labour Party have become born again Brexiteers. The Labour Party is doing damage and will do damage to our economy because of their hard Brexit stance. And the only way Scotland escapes the born again Brexiteers, be they be Tories, be they be the Labour Party, is by having the full powers of an independent nation presiding officer. Question number three, Graeme Simpson. Thank you. To ask the First Minister for what reason consultants have reportedly been hired to advise on the next Clyde and Hebrides ferry contract. First Minister. We are committed to engaging with our various stakeholders in the development of the next generation of the Clyde and Hebrides ferry services contracts, including, of course, engaging with our island communities. As I said yesterday uh, at the Convener's uh, Committee, it's, it's routine practice to use specialist advisors for complex high-value projects uh, such as this one to help ensure that we deliver a service that meets our needs and delivers value for money. Our external advisors will assist with commercial and programme management of the project. They'll provide a level of technical expertise to ensure the contract reflects industry best practice to deliver a service that meets both current and uh, indeed future requirements. We will also seek the views of communities and other stakeholders to inform the approach that has been taken. Graham Simpson. Well, the problem is the Scottish Government has now spent £5.5 million on consultants to advise them on what to think about how to run the ferry network. We have had Project Neptune, that set out a number of options. Then Angus Campbell was tasked with asking islanders what they think, what's been the outcome of that. Now, the current contract with Calmac, which has already been extended, 
expires in 15 months' time. There's no time left to start the procurement process for the, for the next time. The government's approach has been all dither, delay and incompetence. Absolutely. So, can the First Minister tell us if CalMac will be awarded another extension and is he now considering a new operating model for how we run and procure ferries? First Minister. We know that the Tories for a long time have not liked the use of experts. And that uh, has been something that they've made clear uh, over the years. But I do think it's so important that a contract on a project of this size does get in the technical expertise uh, that is required. And, and look, I'll make no apologies at all for the fact that we are engaging with the island communities. And uh, Graham Simpson is absolutely right to mention that work being taken forward by uh, Angus Campbell. That was, of course, a recommendation, a key recommendation uh, of the Project Neptune uh, report. Uh, so Angus Campbell has spent uh, the past few months visiting, engaging with island communities um, and ferry users, and that uh, report should be with ministers uh, very, very soon. And, and although uh, there's no specific obligation to inform uh, Parliament to procurement competitions, we will, of course, update Parliament uh, in relation uh, to decisions that are taken because we understand just how important uh, this uh, matter is. Uh, what we uh, are, are looking to do uh, is, of course, uh, ensure that Ireland communities have the best possible service uh, that they possibly can. And we are focused on making sure that the current service uh, is as resilient and reliable as possible. That's why, of course, we made sure we chartered or CalMac chartered uh, DMV uh, Alfred. Uh, what I will also do, uh, what I won't do, is preempt uh, the outcome, of course, uh, of the current work that's taking place. But what I can restate unequivocally. Is, is that we have no plans to privatise uh, nor indeed split up the Clyde and Hebrides ferry network. Rhoda Grant. Thank you, Presiding Officer. The problem with the, the Clyde and he Hebrides ferry service is not the contract, but it's the ferry fleet. And the First Minister knows the provision of the fleet is the responsibility of the Scottish Government. A consultant's report can't cover up their dismal failure to provide working ferries. Will he now apologise for his own and his government's failure to provide ferries that are up to the job? First Minister. Well, we, are, we have invested in our ferry service, our ferry fleet. We are, of course, going to invest and continue to invest with six ferries uh, for, uh, to, 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 to add uh, to that fleet and to add to the resilience uh, of that fleet. But in the meantime, we are not waiting for those ferries uh, to be built. Where we can charter additional tonnage, we are doing so. And Calmac has spent a considerable amount of money, rightly so, in order to ensure that they have the MV uh, Alfred in place, which is uh, currently, of course, providing uh, that additional resilience uh, on the Arran route, a very important route uh, for the islanders, of course, but very important to Scotland too. Donald Cameron. Um, the island of Mull is currently at the sharp end of Scotland's ferry crisis, with many people simply unable to get on or off the island as a result of the SNP's catastrophic management of our ferry network. Residents are at their wits' end, especially with the alternative route via the Corran Ferry being out of service. Island communities are rightly calling for a compensation scheme, so will the First Minister commit to this, and what urgent action will he take to sort out the problems currently being suffered by islanders on Mull? First Minister. Well, I'm sure uh, that the Transport Minister communicates with uh, Donald Cameron directly about the actions we're taking. Uh, in relation to the issues uh, that are facing the community uh, on Mull. Of course, these issues around compensation have uh, understandably uh, and rightly been raised uh, many a time uh, with the government. And I have looked into uh, the issue around those penalty deductions 
uh, that uh, are made in relation to, to, to failures uh, on the network. Um, my view is that we should continue to use that money uh, to reinvest uh, into the ferry network. I think there is a legitimate call uh, around uh, the use of those deductions, uh, but I, do, I, I would say that I think the best use of that money is reinvesting back into the network. To give just one example, I've mentioned the MV uh, Alfred already. It's been chartered at a cost of £9 million. Uh, about £1 to £3 million uh, of that is coming from the performance deductions uh, and those penalties uh, that uh, Donald Cameron uh, mentioned. So I think it's right that that money is reinvested uh, for the benefit of the entire resilience of the network. Question number four, Rona Mackay. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what assessment the Scottish Government has made of the role of social media in encouraging violence towards pupils and teachers in schools. First Minister. Well, violence is never acceptable. The safety of pupils and staff in our schools uh, is of absolute uh, paramount importance to the Government. I'm deeply concerned about the violent content involving bullying and violent attacks in schools and public transport uh, and other places where young people gather uh, that are being posted online. Uh, Westminster's online safety bill could be a means to ensure social media companies take seriously their responsibility to contain violent content. I wrote to the UK Government on the 9th of May uh, urging it to use the bill to tackle this very issue. We have produced guidance for local authorities and schools to promote positive relationships, to manage behaviours, uh, including de-escalation of violent behaviour. And as the Education Secretary announced yesterday, in the coming weeks she will convene a summit focused on tackling violence in schools. Rona Mackay. Thank the First Minister for the answer. The widespread use of apps like TikTok and Instagram broadcast violence beyond playground walls and leave staff vulnerable in ways they haven't been before. But, as you say, the Scottish Government is limited in its powers when it comes to online activity. Will the Scottish Government implore the UK Government to call on social media companies to improve their own standards and sanctions when it comes to removing material that promote violence? First Minister. Yes, and, and I'm happy to work as constructively as we possibly can with the UK Government uh, on that matter. I think all of us in this chamber probably conclude uh, rightly that uh, online social media companies can do a lot more when it comes to uh, violent content, when it comes to hate uh, for content. Again, something I think members in this chamber uh, have unfortunately been the subject of uh, for many, uh, many years. And while that regulatory responsibility for social media does lie with the UK Government. I am very clear uh, that providers do have a responsibility uh, to enforce their own policies uh, on harmful online uh, content. We will also reflect uh, on what more we can do, uh, even though we do not have the regulatory powers to do so. Uh, we can maybe uh, perhaps engage uh, with social media uh, companies at a ministerial level uh, to see what more uh, pressure we can apply uh, so that, as I say, uh, they live up to their own policies on harmful online content. Stephen Kerr. Yesterday, his government finally accepted the Scottish Conservatives' call for urgent action on violence and disruptive behaviour in schools. His cabinet secretary finally agreed that urgent action, not more talk, was needed to support Scotland's teachers and pupils. So will the First Minister make a commitment today that an action plan to tackle violence and disruption in schools will be in place for the start of the new school year in August. First Minister. 
Well, this, of course, is an important point, and, and right for Stephen Kerr uh, to raise. I do regret the fact that he's managed to turn this into, or try to attempt to turn this into, a political fight. I've said very clearly in my response, although the, the powers uh, in relation to online content lie with UK government, I'm willing to work constructively uh, with them. And I think anybody here, whether you're a parent or not, frankly, can absolutely understand the hurt, the harm, the anxiety that's caused to young people and indeed staff, uh, regardless of what our political persuasion is. So there is, no, there is no hesitancy or reticence from the government to be as constructive, to be uh, as proactive as we possibly can. And that's why, of course, the guidance that we've already issued on top of that, uh, we provided £2 million of funding to support violence prevention activity within schools uh, and uh, communities. We're obviously, as, you, as Stephen Kerr, I should say, uh, already knows, we're gathering evidence uh, at the moment that will help us to better understand the extent of violence and behaviour uh, at a national level right through, uh, the, uh, right through uh, schools uh, in Scotland. That started uh, in February. I'll certainly reflect on what more we can do collectively uh, before the school term starts. Question number five, Claire Baker. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to reports of world-leading dementia expert Craig Ritchie leaving the NHS and his comments referring to problems with infrastructure and blockages in the system. First Minister. I'm, I am very grateful to uh, all clinicians and researchers who make a valuable contribution to our NHS. I recognise very much the expertise Professor Ritchie has built up over his career. Uh, we share his ambition to improve interventions uh, and support people with dementia. And, and I take his criticisms very seriously uh, indeed. I've asked the Health Secretary to review and consider whether there's more that we need to do uh, in these areas. Uh, long waits to access dementia diagnosis in healthcare, uh, they're not acceptable. That's why we allocated six million pounds of ring fence funding to dementia post-diagnostic support over the last two years. This is in addition to an estimated £2.2 billion that is spent on dementia across Scotland uh, in 22-23 by local partnerships. That's a 14% increase since 2014. And we will publish our new dementia strategy just later this month. Uh, and a first two-year delivery uh, plan will be agreed with partners and people with lived experience of dementia uh, later this year. Claire Baker. Um, I thank the First Minister for that response. I do, uh, I'm pleased that he's going to take Craig Ritchie's comments seriously because the new delayed strategy will be the fourth iteration. But many of the commitments in the past 12 years have seen so slow delivery or haven't been uh, achieved. For example, post-diagnostic support. And contributions to the national conversation on the new strategy highlighted a gap between Scotland's commitment on dementia policy and people's experience of care. So can the First Minister advise how the new dementia strategy will address these persistent gaps between rhetoric and reality alongside delivering any new commitments on the strategy? And he does say the uh, related strategy delivery plan will be by the end of the year. Can he give that as a firm commitment because we are still waiting on the original strategy, which is now late? First Minister. Uh, I will uh, give a commitment, as I said, that we will publish our new dementia strategy later this month, and that first, first two-year delivery uh, plan will be agreed with partners uh, and people with lived experience uh, this uh, year. I, I won't uh, obviously preempt uh, the strategy that's going to come out. We are more than happy uh, for the government to commit to ensuring there's a full uh, discussion, even a debate, uh, on that uh, important uh, strategy. I thought from uh, Professor Ritchie's uh, comments, there was a number of issues that Claire Baker has rightly raised uh, that I think we need to make sure uh, we are making even more progress on, particularly in relation 
uh, to research, uh, and I'm pleased to be able to say that the Chief Scientist's uh, Office has funded dementia a neuroprogressive uh, uh, network. Uh, its pathway, uh, one th over 1,000 people uh, were recruited to dementia trials in 2021-22. I want to see what more we can do uh, in order to, to, to progress research uh, in relation uh, to, to, to dementia. Uh, and the second issue that I thought Professor Ritchie it was absolutely right to raise, and again, Claire Baker, right to challenge uh, the government on, is on diagnosis uh, rates as well. So I, I've asked the Health Secretary to look at what more can be done to ensure that we have the data to hand uh, to improve diagnosis rates uh, as early as we possibly can for people uh, with dementia. Christine Graham. Uh, thank you very much, Presiding Officer. Following the sequence of answers to Claire Baker, can I refer to the review that the First Minister raised? Can I ask it addresses the comments by the Professor that there are tests which can detect amyloid, a major contributor to dementia, and drugs which can clear this, but the government infrastructure is not in place to deliver either of these. First Minister. Yeah, yes, uh, of course, that is uh, one of the key uh, comments that was made by Professor Ritchie again, which we will uh, absolutely uh, look at. And uh, that is where the research side of things, of course, uh, is uh, so important. But on top of that, uh, we're also quite keen to see what we can do uh, in relation uh, to increase the availability uh, of medicines. We know there's not a, a drug that can cure uh, uh, dementia, unfortunately, and we hope that science uh, will continue to make progress in relation to the fight uh, against uh, dementia. But where there are effective treatments or, or treatments that can be trialled, uh, I'm really hopeful that there's more that we can do within our infrastructure to make them as widely as available uh, as they possibly can be. Question number six, Ross Greer. Thank you. To ask the First Minister what impact the Scottish Government's Nature Restoration Fund is having for communities on Arran. First Minister. Sure. The Nature Restoration Fund will provide £65 million over the course of this Parliament uh, to multi-year, multi-partner projects to restore and regenerate nature and address climate change. Uh, to date, a total of £430,000 from the Fund's competitive scheme have been awarded to three projects on Arran, the Glen Habitat Restoration Project, uh, the Dugary Estates Green Network Project and the support for the Coast Marine Restoration Project, all of which will bring benefits for both nature uh, and local communities. North Ayrshire Council have also been directly allocated £356,000 since the fund's inception. We will shortly be writing to local authorities confirming their allocations for 23-24. Uh, local authorities, of course, make decisions about local biodiversity priorities in relation to this funding. Ross Greer. I thank the First Minister for that answer. Last Friday, I had the privilege of attending the launch of the RV Coast Explorer at Lomlash Bay, and I'm proud that that vessel was partly funded by £200,000 from the Nature Restoration Fund established by the Scottish Greens. Lomlash Bay's no-take zone, which was demanded and delivered by the local community, has had astounding success. It's a brilliant example of highly protecting marine area. It's seen a huge recovery in the marine environment, which is great for nature and marine tourism. And it's boosted the local fishing industry. Species like scallop and lobster in adjacent waters are now bigger and more plentiful. So can I ask the First Minister how the sustained success of Lomash Bay's no-take zone will be taken on board in progressing HPMAs elsewhere? First Minister. I absolutely agree with uh, Ross Greer. Lomash Bay is a, a perfect example of exactly what we're looking to achieve uh, throughout Scotland's seas, uh, an engaged local community reaping the benefits from that increased marine uh, protection. Some of those benefits are very well articulated by uh, Ross Greer. And it's great to see funding uh, to coast the community of Arran Seabed Trust uh, from the Nature Restoration Fund 
which has uh, helped to support the purchase of the MV Coast uh, Explorer. Uh, so there, there are lots of lessons for us to learn. Of course, we've had many a discussion uh, and a debate in this chamber, and I suspect we'll have many more uh, on the issue of highly protected uh, marine areas. But I've made it very, very clear we want to engage with communities and the Cabinet Secretary uh, for Net Zero and the Just Transition, uh, amongst uh, others, uh, will travel right across our island communities, our coastal communities, to engage with those uh, individuals that could be affected by highly protected marine areas. And let's get to a place uh, where the communities uh, that want to see that further protection uh, on, on, uh, in their marine environment, that we are working with them to ensure marine sustainability for the future. Thank you. We're going to move to constituency and general supplementaries. Um, I have several requests. I'm keen to get through them and be grateful for concise questions and responses. And I call Colette Stevenson. President officer, the latest ONS figures show inflation has dipped slightly to 8.7%, but food prices continue accelerating at the fastest pace for 45 years. The UK cost of living crisis has been years in the making, with Tory austerity, welfare reforms and Brexit hammering household incomes. Can the First Minister confirm what the Scottish Government is doing within the limited powers and resources it has to shield people from the harm created in large part by the actions of the Tories in Westminster? First Minister. It is almost a weekly occurrence, presiding officer, that whenever poverty is mentioned, we hear groans yeah. from the Conservative yeah. uh, benches. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the cost of living is still far too high for too many families who are already struggling, uh, of course, with the increasingly unaffordable cost uh, of food, uh, the increase in housing, uh, the increase of bills, uh, energy bills, uh, for example, and everyday essentials after years and years of austerity of an, a hard Brexit that has been imposed uh, upon Scotland and, of course, a complete and utter catastrophic economic, economic mismanagement by the Tory government uh, in London. So we will do everything we can within our powers, for example, delivering that game-changing Scottish child payment, tripling our fuel and security fund, providing free childcare to all three- and four-year-olds and eligible two-year-olds, free bus travel to two million people. However, we know we know it's only with the uh, full economic and fiscal powers of an independent nation can ministers use all the levers that other governments have to tackle inequalities. And just to give you uh, one example, presiding officer, just the reversal of, of just a few of those regressive welfare uh, decisions the UK government have made, if they just reversed a few of them, uh, we could lift 70,000 people, including 30,000 children, out of poverty. May be in, in no doubt about it, presiding officer, this cost of living crisis that have plunged so many people into poverty is a political choice by the Conservative Party, and the only way out of it is by achieving our independence. Russell Finlay. Thank you, presiding officer. Uh, mum of two, Jill Barclay, was beaten and raped by a stranger. Rhys Bennett then set her on fire while she was still alive. The judge described the 23-year-old's crimes as medieval in their barbarity. Yet, his prison sentence was reduced due to new under-25 sentencing guidelines. So, can Hamza Yusuf tell the people of Scotland whether he thinks these should apply in every single case, no matter how wicked or barbaric the crime. Yeah. 
First Minister. Can I say to Russell Finlay, of course, these are not matters that are decisions for the First Minister. They are rightly left to the independent judiciary. And they must always be thus, even in the most heinous, despicable cases, such as the case of Joe Barclay uh, that has just been referenced by Russell uh, Finlay. Uh, and, 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 of course, uh, I think all of our thoughts uh, will be with uh, Jill, the family, affected uh, by what is, was a despicable uh, crime. And, of course, her family uh, will undoubtedly, her community, her friends, uh, be reeling from the barbarity uh, of that sickening uh, and medieval uh, uh, act, as described uh, by Russell Finlay. But it can never be the case that politicians, let alone government ministers, interfere in decisions that are made, sentencing decisions that are made by the judiciary. And, of course, sentencing guidelines are taken forward again by the Independent Sentencing uh, Council. Uh, what I have said in relation to a previous case that has been raised uh, with me as First Minister is that the Cabinet Secretary for Justice and Home Affairs, uh, in her regular engagement with the Sentencing Council, has asked for more information around when those regular reviews uh, of sentencing guidance uh, will take place. And of course, I'm sure she'll be happy to keep the member informed of those discussions. Michael Mara. Thank you, President Officer. This is a letter received by my constituent in July 2022 from this SNP government. It told her that surgery for lower, lower pelvic prolapse should be completed with, within one year by order of Cabinet Secretary for Health, Hamza Youssef. My constituent has now waited for her surgery for eight and a half years. As a last resort, we spoke to the press about this deeply personal situation. That forced the hand of NHS Tayside, who will now pay for the private surgery. Why should it come to this, First Minister? Eight and a half years, telling the most intimate details of your life to journalists. These were your guarantees. I now have two further cases of women in Tayside waiting years and years for this essential surgery. So how many women are waiting for treatment for lower pelvic prolapse and for how long? Does he know? Is this another Tayside crisis or are women across Scotland suffering in silence? First Minister. Can I thank Michael Manor uh, for raising what is an incredibly uh, important issue and the issue of lower pelvic prolapse, of course, affects many women uh, right up and down uh, the country. Uh, there is no doubt, of course, that uh, we, of course, had challenges around our waiting uh, times uh, pre the pandemic. But I don't think there's any doubt by any objective measure uh, that, of course, the pandemic, which has been the biggest shock our NHS has ever faced in its almost 75-year existence, uh, has, has undoubtedly had a significant impact. We are focused on trying to help and assist those that have been waiting the longest. So our, our, our focus has been on those two-year waits. And the number of uh, patients, outpatients, for example, uh, that have been waiting over two years, they have declined and dropped and reduced by over 50 per cent since September, by over 60 per cent uh, since uh, June last year. In terms of inpatients uh, as well, uh, the numbers waiting over two years for inpatient day cases was down 28 per cent in uh, six months. In fact, 18 out of 30 specialities had fewer than 10 patients waiting more than two years. So we are making progress in terms of the cases, the specific cases that Michael Mara has. I'm more than happy that he forwards them either to myself or indeed uh, to the Cabinet Secretary for Health. And anything that we can do to assist, of course, we will seek to do. Stuart McMillan. Thank you, President Officer. The First Minister will be aware of the latest update from the Competition and Markets Authority indicating that global factors are not solely to blame for high fuel prices, with the evidence indicating that fuel margins have increased across the retail market over the past four years, but particularly for supermarkets. 
The First Minister will also be aware that I have raised this issue in the Chamber before with regards to Morrison's Tesco and BP ripping off by Greenock and Inverclyde constituents. Uh, will the First Minister commit the Scottish Government to making representations to the UK Government and also to the CMA uh, when the full report is published in July to ensure that reforms are forthcoming to prevent fuel retailers from robbing my constituents? First Minister. I will make representations as Stuart McMillan has asked me to do, and can I also commend Stuart McMillan for raising this issue consistently in this chamber on behalf of his constituents. There is simply no doubt that high fuel prices have contributed to the cost of living crisis for people and indeed for businesses right across Scotland. The Scottish Government has raised inconsistent pricing in between, for example, urban and rural areas. But in particular, areas such as Inverclyde, uh, and we've raised those issues with the Competition and Markets Authority, is a key issue uh, for investigation. But I'm happy to re-emphasise re those points uh, to the CMA. Uh, as such, I, I do welcome the latest update uh, from the CMA uh, and note that, as well as seeking more information from supermarkets on their role in the fuel market, they've indicated that their final report will cover that uh, important issue of geographic variation in pricing. And, uh, as I say, uh, I will make sure that uh, if there are any further representations we can make, uh, we will make them on this issue. Brian Whittle. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, I met with the Chief Superintendent of Lanarkshire Police earlier this week, and of the many things we discussed around the increasing pressure on the police force, the fact that over 15, of the over 15,000 cases they attended last month, only 19 per cent involved criminal activity was a bit of a surprise. Much of the rest of those cases were around mental health issues. I wanted to ask the First Minister if there is a recognition that cutting much of the other support services is putting an increased pressure on police time, especially at a time when they are having to cut the numbers in the streets. Yeah. First Minister. Can I say we have, uh, over the years, increased our spend on mental health quite considerably, uh, actually, from this government. And uh, in relation to particularly young people, uh, we are ensuring that we are uh, increasing the number of uh, staff that we have that work uh, in CAMS uh, and in psychological uh, services. Notwithstanding that, uh, Brian Whittle is absolutely right to raise the issue of the amount of police time that is taken uh, in relation to helping those uh, with mental health uh, challenges and vulnerabilities. Now, that is not great for uh, the police and, and the police service. It's also, of course, not the best for the individual that is suffering uh, from uh, those mental health challenges too. So there's a range of work that we've done through the distress brief intervention, for example, the enhanced mental health uh, pathway, and I'm happy to write to Brian Whittle, uh, I'm sure the Health Secretary writes to Brian Whittle with the detail of the various interventions uh, that we have underway, but he can be absolutely assured the Cabinet Secretary uh, for Health and indeed the Cabinet Secretary for Justice are working closely uh, on this matter. And Colin Smith. Thank you, President Officer. Over a period of 30 years, hundreds, maybe even thousands of little girls sent by the state to Farnethy House Residential School for Care for Nurturing were instead subjected to a catalogue of unimaginable mental, physical and, in some cases, sexual abuse. Today, none of the perpetrators of this abuse have been fully brought to justice. Dozens of those little girls and all women are in Parliament today to listen to my members' debate on justice for the Farnethy survivors. Whilst they do not expect the First Minister to intervene in a police investigation, they do want to be listened to. So they have asked me to ask you, First Minister, if you will personally meet with them, not necessarily today but soon, listen to their plight and give them that unequivocal assurance that what happened to those little girls will be properly acknowledged. That is surely the least we can do. First Minister.
yes, I will commit to meeting uh, with the survivors. And I have met with some of the survivors. Some of them are constituents of mine. I've met them in a uh, local uh, MSP uh, capacity. I'm afraid I won't be able to, to do it today, but I'm certain our offices will liaise to be able to find uh, a suitable time. I, of course, uh, commend uh, Colin Smith for bringing the members' debate. I know that will be taking place uh, after this again. I hope you'll accept my apologies uh, that I will not be able to stay for that, but I know the Deputy First Minister will respond on behalf of the government. But in terms of uh, his request, he's absolutely right. I think it is the least uh, we can do uh, that I can do, and I'd be happy to meet uh, with the survivors and would invite uh, Colin Smith, of course, to assist us in facilitating that uh, meeting. Thank you. That concludes First Minister's questions. The next item of